0: We're always in a rush. It's go, 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 go. But isn't it interesting how God sometimes has a way of slowing you down and making you think? God has a way of making you reflect. I had an opportunity like that uh, this week. Um, I actually had to uh, visit the emergency room this week. God slowed me down a little bit, and... um, I was having this pain in my abdomen, which I just thought I might have been a little gassy. (laughs) But the pain had been persisting for the last couple of weeks, and it's been getting worse and worse. And then I started feeling this pain just radiating and numbness down my arm. And, oh, boy, you don't want to play around with that, right? So I went to the the VA emergency room and uh, got all checked out. Uh, gastritis, I guess, whatever that is. <laughs> uh, so they say. So, you know, as I sat in that emergency room, and I didn't want to alarm the family, and so, you know, I told nobody they had to come rush to the emergency room or anything. And so as I sat there, I kind of reflected, and of course, many of you know I'm in school now, so I was reading one of my many, many books that I'm reading right now. And uh, I realized that. I had to have this problem diagnosed, but I couldn't diagnose myself. I knew I had a problem, but someone who had the credentials, someone who was skilled, had to diagnose me. And then once it was diagnosed, they had to prescribe me, little pills that I hate to take, that they had to prescribe me this medication so that I can address my issue. So, what does any of that have to do with what we're talking about today? Well, I'll tell you how it connects. And if you guys know me, those of you who know me well know that I find God in everything. Even the most mundane things, I find God. And I realized that in this emergency room visit, that beloved, we too have a problem. Every single one of us, we have a problem. But it's a problem that we can't diagnose. It's a problem that we can't quite address and remedy or diagnose, so what do we have to do? We have to go to someone who has the skill. We have to go to someone who has the knowledge and the ability to tell us what's wrong. And thank goodness that that somebody happens to be God. Jesus Christ, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they have given us the diagnosis they have told us what's wrong but they've done one better they have told us how to remedy our issue but just like with the pills that the doctor gave me this week the pill is only but so effective it's actually not effective at all if i'm not willing to take it well first receive the medication and then take the medication. And isn't it like that with God, that he tells us, and we're going to get into the word of James here in a moment, but isn't that like God that he tells us exactly what's wrong with us? He gives us a prescription to help us address and resolve our issue, but so many of us won't take it. We won't receive it. And some of us who receive it won't actually use it we won't take it. And so in our lesson today, we're going to look at James once again. If you're new here, if you're the first time here today, we're doing a sermon series on the book of James. Today is part seven. We're almost done. Part seven of our James series. We're talking about in this series, walking out our faith. And so, as we talked about a little bit in these last few weeks in Pastor Jim, Pastor Ryan, how what they have taught us and educated us, the one thing that we're seeing in this book is this epistle that James, half-brother of Jesus, that he writes us, he's telling us in this text, and you can go there today in James chapter 4, you can turn there, that's where we're going to be today. Um, James is telling us in his epistle about a lot of issues, He's going extensively into not only telling us about the issues that we have, but James goes even deeper and tells us very simple and practical solutions to our problem. James even goes one step further, just like the doctor said to me, listen, Will, if you don't take this medication, your symptoms are probably going to get worse. James does a similar thing in this epistle. James tells us what our problem is, James gives a solution, and James warns us. James says, listen, if you don't do this, here are going to be the consequences for your lack of receiving and applying what I'm going to teach you. So today... James chapter 4, we're going to read verses 1 through 12. We're going to go back a little bit. We're going to, because it's relevant to our discussion, we're going to recap a little bit of what we talked about last week very briefly. Again, because it's very, very relevant to our discussion. So let's go really quick to chapter 3. And I want to read again and just recap verses 13 through 18. And again, this might seem a little odd, but I'll explain it to you in a moment here why we're doing this. So let's start in verse 13 of James chapter 3. It says, who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above but is earthly natural demonic for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist there is disorder and every evil thing but the wisdom from above is first pure and then peaceable gentle reasonable full of mercy and good fruits unwavering without hypocrisy and the seed, whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. let 's read the first two cha- first few verses of verse four, and then we 'll begin to unpack this, and I 'll help you connect it. Verse four, I mean chapter one, chapter four, verse one says, "What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures?" That wage war in your members. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. So what you may spend it on, or uh, rather, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. We're going to stop right there. So why did I read the latter part of chapter 3? I explained to you guys last week that um, all of the scriptures, all of the numbers, the the chapter numbers, we added that for the simplicity of reading uh, centuries ago, for our convenience. But the epistles weren't originally written with all of these numbers and breaks and chapters. They weren't written that way. What I want you to understand is last week we talked about wisdom. We talked about living the good life through God's wisdom. But see, James here, I'm reiterating what we talked about a little bit last week, because what James is doing, he's continuing his thought on wisdom, but he's shifting gears. You see, in, the, in chapter 3, he is very specific in talking about wisdom itself, but he's still discussing the topic of wisdom, but he's shifting focus. This is why James here in this scripture, he refers to in these latter words in chapter 3, he talks about the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And then the very next verse, in chapter 4, verse 1, he asks a question. He starts with a question. What's his question? What is the source of your quarrels and conflicts? See, he's talking about this fruit, this seed of wisdom, which is peace. And now he's addressing the quarrels in the church. See, because he's talking to the church. Remember, if we go back to chapter 1, who's he writing to? He's writing to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. And so there's a general idea that the churches have been quarreling in the land. And James feels the need to address this. And so there's a very strong words and language that we're going to see in this text today. And I want to talk a little bit about that because I think it's important for us to see this language that he uses. And it's very intentional and it's very deliberate. James uses words like war and fighting. Now, I know when we use those words, guys, it doesn't really seem that impactful. We are probably, of all generations, we are probably the most desensitized generation that's ever lived. And war seems of little consequence, and it seems, especially for those of us who have lived most of our lives here in Western society, most of us care very little, and it's war has very little impact on our lives. And so we trivialize it. James is using war and these strong words of war and fighting, it's very deliberate. Why? Not because there isn't any other way to describe what's happening in the text. James is using it because he wants us to see the horror of war. He wants us to see the horror of conflict and quarreling in the church. James needs us to see that. There's being someone who has experienced war i have experienced combat i have seen the worst that men can do to other men i understand this and this scripture just popped off the pages at me as i examined the text this week but beloved we trivialize it and it means nothing to us and that fighting and bickering and quarreling in the church especially is of little consequence to us not a big deal but james says otherwise James says here he's very particular and let let me give you this visual and maybe this will help because again I think we're so desensitized and and maybe this will help you understand how horrific war is and maybe some of you have experienced this imagine you were the soldier And, and imagine for a moment that you were picked off by a sniper bullet from the enemy And someone had to bring your loved one a folded flag. Think of the horror of that. Or let me give you another example. Maybe that one doesn't hit home too much. How would you feel if you came home from the front lines? And I've seen this. Again, I've been to war, I've been overseas. Where I've been with families where they come home from being out of harm's way only to come home and find that where they left their family at home is now just a crater that a bomb left in its wake and their family's nowhere to be found or, or maybe this one will do it. Maybe you're the lucky one who has survived a nuclear holocaust and all you see is vast nothingness. And I've seen this, maybe not a nuclear explosion, but I've seen the destruction of bombs where all you see is nothingness and all that is left is what God had created. Even before he created, there's nothing. Why am I giving you all of those vivid descriptions, those vivid images because this is exactly, guys, what James is trying to do in this text. When James uses these words, they are, to us, they are seemingly inconsequential, but James and his readers, they understood the power and the significance of these words. Again, it's not to say he couldn't have chose different ones because he could have, but he needed us to see within the church how serious and even with amongst us and even outside of the church how serious and significant quarreling is here's a fact that james wants us to see here and i want to read this verbatim because this is something that i i quoted from a christian theologist and when they were looking at this scripture they said that war and he uses the word war in this scripture and the quarreling of Christian churches. He says that war represents a continual state of hostility, that it's active antagonism. And it's there are, even though it may not be active violence, but there is this active and continued hostility antagonism, and occasionally there are flare-ups where there are active quarrels and engagements and fighting. That's war. I think there have been a period in this church where we too were at war where we two were actively engaged against one another. And James is speaking so much against that. But what causes it, guys? I want you to see this because you know I'm a very practical preacher, and I want you to understand what the Scripture is trying to tell us. Here, he tells us what the fact is. Now, let's look at the condition. How do we get there? What's the condition that we're facing? What causes us to get to this place? The Scripture tells us that it's self-will. And it's our self-determination, our own desires. Actually, this word uses pleasure or desire, our own self-interest that gets us into these wars and these conflicts amongst each other. And I don't know about you, but, but, but I, I see this and I'm like, God, why? What are we doing? when you think of pleasure when most of you think of the word pleasure it seems morally neutral right pleasure seems morally neutral but guess what we're creatures of sin so pleasure combined with our sin nature is always going to drive us to do what look out for number one seek our own pleasure seek our own understanding seek out for us this is what pleasure does In the Greek, the word for pleasure is hedon, where we get our word hedonism. And hedonism or hedon in the scripture always has a a connection to self-indulgence. And what is war against someone else but a war of your own self-indulgence? That's our condition that James is exposing here in this scripture but then there's the practice, right? Because we all know we have conditions. All of us have this condition of sin, but it's not necessarily in us all the time to practice it. But James tells us that there is a not only the condition that we have, but there is a practice of sin. And how do we practice it? What causes us to practice and engage in war and conflict with one another? Your selfish heart. And I know that's hard for some of us to swallow, that we have selfish hearts. But, beloved, we do. We have very selfish hearts. And I know we try to fight against it and we try to stand against it, but we have selfish hearts. And all our hearts want to do is satisfy our own wills, our own desire. And listen, when we quarrel, even if it's not you that has caused the quarrel, sometimes you have the power to settle it, but you won't. Sometimes you have the power to squash the beef, so to speak, the quarrel, and you won't. Why? Why won't we? Right? Even though we may not be the person that caused it, we may not be the person who's caused the offense, but we won't settle it because of our own selfish heart's pride. We won't resolve it. But James tells us that we must do something different. Listen, I'm not saying that there aren't fights worth fighting i'm not i'm not saying that i'm not saying that there aren't battles worth battling i'm not saying that at all but at what price will we wage these wars at what price will we engage in these battles It is not appropriate for us as believers in the Most High for us to engage in warfare, whatever the battle is, and lose our principles, our values, and our virtues of Christianity. It's something we simply can't do. It's not worth the price. Jesus engaged in the greatest battle of all when as we sung today, he defeated death. He had to wage that war, but never once did he compromise who he was in person or in deity nor should we as believers have to compromise ourselves to engage in war and battles that are appropriate but our hearts are selfish they are troubled and we battle inside it is actually the battle internally that we wage against Most of us think that our battles are with people. Your battle is not with anybody in this church, and your battle certainly is not with anyone on the street. You know who your battle is with? Right here. Your battle is with yourself and your own heart. But we don't want to look in the mirror. Why? Because what does the law say? The law says, the Bible tells us that the law, what does it do? It reflects our sin, it exposes who we are. We don't like mirrors. We only like mirrors when it's it's cute and when it's pretty. We don't like to see our real selves. And to be honest with you, we don't like it so much that we got filters on every single picture that we take these days. We don't want to see the realness of what and who we are. And James says, you got to look, guys. You're waging in war. You're engaging in war against each other because you're not willing to look. You're not willing to see your own hearts. Well, that was just verse (laughs) 1. No, I'm just kidding i'm just kidding well let's look at this let's actually take a look really quickly at verse two because it is our self-fulfilling hearts that actually wreak havoc on the peace in our lives i want to read verse two real quick it says you lust and do not have so you commit murder wow see we don't we don't really see fighting as a big deal and, you know, when, I ain't get, when people come to me and they say, you know, um, Pastor, you're being extra, as the kids say these days. You, you're, you're exaggerating. This isn't really a big deal. Like, we're fighting and we're, we're exchanging harsh words, but eh, it's not a big deal. But you're wrong. Because every fight, no matter how trivial, no matter how seemingly inconsequential, is a very big deal. Because let me tell you, if you think I'm being extra, if you think I'm being a little uh, dramatic then you must say the same for Jesus. Because in in Matthew, Jesus, Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, Jesus actually says something really interesting, which I'm going to read for you guys for your benefit. 521, listen to how serious Jesus says that the quarreling, the fighting, the disagreements, watch how serious Jesus says. Verse 21, he says, have you heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder? And whoever commits murder shall be liable in the court." But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Guys, this is not a joke. There is nothing trivial about our quarrels and our fighting. Jesus makes a very pointed statement. If you think that me and Jesus are trivial and extra and dramatic, well, John repeats the same sentiment in 1 John. He repeats the same thing. He says, anyone who failed to love his brother is like Cain. Quarreling in the church is a big deal. It's serious. And Jesus takes it serious as well. What's James doing? James is looking at these churches as he pens this letter to the, to the 12 tribes that are dispersed. He's penning this letter, and what he's doing is that he's looking at this picture from a godly perspective, not an earthly perspective, because as we read in 13, the wisdom of man is demonic. He's not looking at this situation from an earthly perspective, but he sees it how God sees it. And he says, you're warring is serious business and you're condemning your own self to hell but I think if Christ is love and if the church is a representative of God's love to the world then we shouldn't tolerate war in the church we shouldn't tolerate insults, we shouldn't tolerate gossiping or bickering we shouldn't shrug off any fighting among us because it's serious business. I know sometimes that's hard as this wasn't a sermon that was going to get you screaming and shouting today. But sometimes we got to hear the truth of the word and we have to examine our hearts. Because some of you you may not be warring in the church but some of you might be warring against the very image of God in your own households. And you think, well that's okay because it's just my family. I made a statement recently to a friend of mine and I said, listen, I... My house is where I practice and perfect my faith so that I can exercise it in the world in the right form, right? Y'all hear what I'm saying? Home is where I practice, is where I can make the mistakes and get it all out so that I can show people the love of God in the world. But most of us think it's okay to fight at home and quarrel at home and we don't see the image of God of those in our own household. We can't stand for it. We cannot tolerated now in this next section really quickly as we continue to move on James is getting into this idea of prayer he he transitions with this thought about prayer which I want to read to you guys really quickly he says you do not have because you do not ask you ask you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures listen context is everything And I see this scripture being used so often, and it's used and taken out of context, and people use it for their own gain and their own benefit. And I want to clarify some things about this scripture. First of all, let's take a step back. What is James talking about? What are they praying about? What do they want? Let's read it in context. Remember, James already rebuked the, the people in this epistle for what? For wanting to be teachers. He's already rebuked them. He's rebuked them for having to claiming wisdom and knowledge that they really didn't have. It's about wisdom. This prayer is really a prayer for wisdom, but they want wisdom for the wrong reasons in this text. Remember, we told you wisdom was the key to the good life. And James in the scripture is saying, listen, you're asking for wisdom, but you don't receive because you're asking for wisdom for the wrong reasons. How many of y'all have had some problems in your life, have had some issues with people, and you're praying, but let's be honest, you're praying for the wrong reasons. Now, I know that's a general thing. James is being more specific, but we can apply that same lesson to our prayers in general. Beloved, you have to understand that a heart that is with wrong motives, a heart that is self-centered and self-focused will defile your very prayer. It is your heart that hinders your own prayer. How many of you have been in a season where you're sending prayers up and you ain't getting much down? Anybody ever been in a season like that? Some of y'all understand what I'm talking about. But let me tell you something. A lot of us think and we have this perception that God doesn't hear prayers or God doesn't answer prayers. Beloved, that is a falsity. That is a lie. There is nothing that God does not hear. There is nothing that God does not receive. God hears it all and he actually answers all of your prayers. The problem is God's going to give you three responses. He's going to give you a yes, a no, or not now. And to be honest with you, we don't like no and not now. And so we keep praying, even though he's already told us. And we think, well, I'm going to keep praying. You said no, God, but I'm going to keep praying, even though you said no, even though you said maybe later, I'm going to keep on praying, and maybe you'll say yes. No, because we're praying with selfish motives. There's no such thing as an unanswered prayer. There's no such thing as a prayer that's not heard. But where's your heart? When you're praying, where's your heart? Is your prayer about you? Is it about your needs? Is it about doing you and getting you and fulfilling you? Or is your prayer about God changing you, transforming you, helping you to understand the situation? God, grow me in this. God, even though I'm in disagreement with them, God, will you bless them? What's your prayer like? James is transitioning us In this particular scripture, in this line, he's transitioning us from the relationship this way. Now we're going to talk about the relationship this way, and that's the cross, right? Isn't that God teaching us to be in relationship this way, which if you read in the Old Testament, those are the first five, four, five commandments, right? And then... Or, or rather, this, this, this is the first four or five commandments, right? Being in right relationship with God. And then the latter commandments are about this, right? Being in right relationship with each other. So now James is going to begin to transition into our relationship with God. Now watch this. Let's look at this text real quick. In verse 4, there's a very strong word here in verse 4. If you look at your text, some of your texts may say adulterer or adulteress. That is a really, really strong word. Now, I told you James is old school, right? James preaches from an old school, Old Testament perspective. His epistle is just filled with Old Testament imagery and Old Testament references, and he uses a theme of marriage that is consistent throughout the entire narrative of of Scripture. He says, you adulterous people. If we're adulterous, then that means what? We were married to him. That we were in a relationship with him. And James says, You adulterous people. He says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Now I want to tell you, this is where it comes together because James is teaching us how to plot our course. And plotting our course in life is so important. You know, when I was in the military, we did countless hours of land navigation. Countless. And we had a big compass, and it had all kinds of funny little gadgets and things that we could use. And it's how we plotted our course. It's how we got on our grid and our maps. It's how we got from point A to point B is before we stepped foot out on our journey, we had to plot a course. And James is is going to show us how we can plot our course in life towards God. And so, as we examine this theme, we see God in relationship with us. He refers to us as adulterous because why? We're in covenant marriage, we're in covenant relationship. James is not speaking to unbelievers right now, he's not. He's not speaking to unbelievers. He is speaking directly in this application um, to the Jews in dispersion, to the Christians out there in the world. He's speaking to the church. But James is saying, listen, you are married to Christ. You are married to God. God saved you. He redeemed you. And he came into covenant relationship with you. Why? Because we first broke it, and God did this amazing redemptive work He redeemed you, because God is like this, this young man who's full of zeal, who has found and is pursuing and now has claimed his bride. And now that we are his possession, what do we do? We walk away. We walk away in our own selfish ambitions and our own selfish desires. And James says, you adulterous people, after all God has done for you, You walk away and you become friends with the world, the very thing that was leading you to destruction, the very thing that was leading you into the pits of hell. You were saved and redeemed from it, and you have the audacity to return back to her. This is something that cannot be reconciled. James says you cannot be in love and friends with God, and you cannot be in love and friends with the world. Two things that will never be reconciled, but yet this is us. We want to play this game. We want to ride the fence, and we want to play with the world and think that we can still be friends with God. James says, no. These are two things that are irreconcilable. You'll never bring those two things together. To be friends with the world, to love your own desires, to love your own selfish ambitions, to love your own stuff, is to be completely against God. But we don't see it that way. It's okay so what if I go clubbing so what if I get drunk every once in a while so what if I you fill in the blank and we play these trivial games with it not realizing the seriousness of what it is that we're doing but James tells us you can't be friends with both there are real consequences guys to our behavior let's continue because I, I got still so much to cover and a very little bit of time to do it. Let's look at verse five really quickly. And in verse five, he says, or do you think that the scripture speaks no purpose? And then he says in your translations, may be a little different, but in my version, in my translation, that very next part of verse five says, the spirit which he has made to dwell in us, lust with envy. How many of y'all know that God is a jealous God. It's not our kind of jealousy, though. See, because our kind of jealousy is is a worldly jealousy. Our kind of jealousy comes from a bad place. But God's jealousy is righteous. And he says, listen, you chase after the world after I've saved you and you didn't deserve it I redeemed you and you didn't merit it at all I gave you all of my splendor and all of my glory and I sacrificed my only begotten son on the cross and I filled you with my spirit so that you could be renewed so that you could be restored and so that you can enter into the kingdom into the house that I have prepared for you I do this for you and then you go back to the world. Well, I'm a little bit jealous. And the spirit that I have placed in you is envious, is jealous. Guys, let me talk to my fellows real quick. Guys, you, you ever been jealous about your wife? Anybody here? Come on, guys. Anybody ever been jealous about your wife or for your wife? Okay, maybe I'm the only one. Okay. Maybe it's a Puerto Rican thing. I don't know. <laughs> but... There are times where I've gotten jealous for Rosa. And guys, isn't that, isn't that a good thing sometimes? There's a little bit of jealousy. That's all right. Honey, who are you talking to? Right? There's that little bit of jealousy. But again, our jealousy comes from a, from a different place. But God's jealousy is the same. God wants to know, who are you talking to? What thing are you dealing with right now that you shouldn't be? What thing have you replaced me for? right? Because God has to reign sovereignly in our hearts. If we go back to the Old Testament and we see that when Abraham had his son, God gave him this this son, and there was a son that he desired his whole life, and God said, give him back. God said, sacrifice him. Y'all got to connect this. Why did God tell him to sacrifice his son? Because his son began to replace God in his heart. God says, I want to reign supreme. I want to live sovereignly and only in your hearts but we replace him every chance we get we replace god in our hearts with something else and he's jealous and he has a right to be jealous because he he rebirthed us in the blood of jesus he gave us a new life in the holy spirit and god has a right to be jealous but sometimes we don't see it that way Let me read verse 6. Verse 6 says, it's very simple. It's but five or six very short words. And it says, but he gives a grace or a greater grace. I I love this scripture. I must have read those, those five or six words. I must have read those words about 20 times. Because it seems simple, but sometimes God doesn't need an elaborate 20-page dissertation to tell you a profound truth. God says this, I tirelessly work for you. I tirelessly work in your favor. God says, I've never failed. I'm all sufficient. I am. I, I. just have everything that you need. And even when you fall short, God says, I have more grace. God says that no matter what we do, he is never defeated. God says that even when we say, God, this isn't enough, he answers right away and says, fine, here's more. And his resources are never depleted. His patience is never exhausted. And his generosity, beloved, has no limits. Are y'all seeing this? A few short words, so much. He just simply, he gives more grace. It's unending God's grace. But there's a catch. (laughs) Read the fine print. There's a catch. Because with all of this uh, all-sufficient, all, all, just endless everything, there is a catch. God says, because I'm going to give you more and more and more and more, you too have a responsibility. I want to look at those responsibilities really quickly today. We have a responsibility. God says, hey, here's my grace. And with the same breath, God says, here's my grace. And with the same breath, he goes, now here's what you have to do. Okay? We just want grace, but we don't want to do it. We don't want to do the work. We don't want to put in the effort. We just want grace. And so many false theologies and false doctrines will teach us, just get God's grace. There's nothing else you need to do. Now, don't don't misunderstand what I'm saying to you, beloved. We cannot earn. We cannot merit any of God's grace and favor. That's not what I'm saying. It's not what I'm saying at all. But God says, here's my grace that you don't deserve. Here's my grace that you haven't merited. But here it is. Now I need you to do some work. And here's what God asks us to do. We look at verse 7 through 10. Let's read that really quickly. Now this, I love this because this starts out, actually, let's read the second part of uh, verse 6. And it starts out with, therefore, right? Verse 6 says, he gives a greater grace. Therefore, That's what I told you, I have your grace. Here's what you need to do. I gave you grace, therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 7 says, submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. I'm going to explain that in a moment. And let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Verse 10 says, humble yourself in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. So here's the things that we want to talk about as we begin to wrap up today. God's going to give you your grace, his grace. God's going to bless you. But God says, here's what I need you to do. Pay attention because there are four major things There are actually 10 or more commands that he gives us here, but I'm going to wrap it up in four things succinctly. Are you ready? God says in this scripture, first, I need you to submit. That's the first thing in this scripture. Before anything else, after he gives you his grace, which you haven't earned, you haven't worked for, you haven't merited, you don't deserve it. After he's giving you his grace, he says, submit. Submit. Submit to God. Now, submitting implies that there is an active allegiance. Y'all following me here? That there is an active process of saying, God, because I'm submitting, I'm being subordinate to you. I am surrendering to your will, to your mercy, and to your grace. And listen, I say it has to be an active and continuous allegiance because so many times we say it, but we don't walk it. Okay? It has to be active. Okay, Now the very next word in the scripture, after it says submit to God, therefore, and then it says resist. Now when we look at the scripture, sometimes the word resist seems like it's much more active than submit. Watch, I'm going to give you this example. Because this seems like this is submit, okay? You kneel before God, you surrender, you submit before him. And it just seems like this. And it seems like there's nothing more, that this is it, right? It seems like it's not very active. But see, the work on our knees, what are we doing on our knees, guys? The Bible tells us we do there's so much we do from our knees that actually this is a position in our submission and our total allegiance to God. This is our place of power. That this is an active allegiance. And although this seems sedentary, and this doesn't seem like there is much going on, this is a place of power. And then while we're at the throne, what does the enemy do? I don't mean to talk to my back towards you guys, but I got to illustrate this. What does the enemy do that when we surrender our total allegiance to the living God, where does the enemy do? What does he do? He comes in front of us to stand before us in God. Not to stand before God for us, that's Christ's job, but he tries to stand in between us and the living God. And God says, all you have to do, this is the next word, he says, just resist. He didn't say fight him, just resist, because what's the enemy going to do? The enemy stands in between you and God, the enemy is pushing you back away from God, he just says, resist. What does this look like, guys? This looks like total surrender we resist the devil through total surrender and allegiance to God this is how we resist this is our active allegiance to God in resisting the devil we push forward not fighting but simply pushing forward towards God in total surrender to him did I make my point God wants our total allegiance. And then the next scripture, he says, which I love this, and actually during worship, it brought me to tears thinking about this very idea. I need you all to pay attention to this. He says in this very next verse, he says, draw near. (laughs) That may seem irrelevant. That may seem not much, but when he's telling us to draw near, what he's asking us to do is he is asking us to engage in active, deliberate fellowship with God. See, many of us just have a passive relationship with God. We have accepted him as Lord and Savior and our relationship is just passive. It's like, okay, God, I I know you love me. Maybe I'll pray today, maybe I won't. Maybe I'll read the scripture, maybe I won't. I'm not judging you if that's you, I'm not judging. But it's passive. God says, I want you to draw near to me. And I want you to dive into my word. And I want you to get into your prayer closet. I want you to find yourself in just total surrender. Not because the world sees you. Because if you're praying so the world sees you, you're praying for different motives. But he says, I want you to get away from everything. Like Jesus did. One of Jesus' greatest habits was Jesus drew away from the crowds and drew near to God. Jesus says, I want you, God says, I want you to draw near to me in active fellowship. And what is it? When I'm drawing near to someone, when I'm drawing near to the one I love, it's because I'm longing for you. I'm I'm longing after you. I am seeking you. Why would I draw near to you if I wasn't desiring your attention, if I wasn't desiring your affection, if I wasn't desiring to be close to you? God says, draw near to me in active fellowship. But then he says, purify yourself, though. Don't come to me dirty. I mean, come to me dirty. But you got to clean up, you got to clean things up, you got to get your life right. God says, I'm going to get you right, and I'm going to get you to a place of fulfillment and wholeness in me, but I won't clean up all your problems. God says, I'm I'm not going to take care of all of your stuff. There's some stuff that you got to work out in faith. This this whole book is about walking out your faith. God says, I'll save you. I will restore you. I will redeem you. But the work of sanctification is yours through the Holy Spirit. And the first thing he says is, what does he say? Clean your hands. Guys, cleaning our hands is not the work of the Holy Spirit. Okay? I'm going to say that again. Cleaning your hands Is not the work of the Holy Spirit. What's he trying to tell us when he says to clean our hands? He's talking about our outward lives. Listen, when I got saved, listen, I'm an old school hip hop guy. I love hip hop when I was growing up. I grew up with it. You know, all the old school hip hop uh, artists, I I, I was down with that. And when I first got saved, I I still listened to it, right? This is one of those cleaning the hands kind of thing. You know, some of the, the, the hip hop wasn't always the cleanest stuff to listen to, right? And this is one of those cleaning the hands things. This is one of those outside, outworking things that I had to work out. And it was over time that I had made a conscious decision to clean my hands of that worldly stuff and that worldly existence, but that wasn't the work of the Holy Spirit. That was work that I had to do. Why? Because it was something that was preventing me from truly coming into God's presence. And I said, and it was one of many things. And I said, God, if I got to draw close to you, then I got I to gotta get this stuff cleaned out of my life. I got I to gotta let this stuff go. For you, it might be different. For you, it might be old pain and hurt. It might be drama, trauma that someone has caused you. Whatever it is, God says, it's time for you to clean your hands. But then he says, I want you to clean your heart. Now, Now, I want you to understand this notice the order i'm not saying that you have to do this work in order to be saved please don't misunderstand me that's not what i'm saying don't misunderstand this text but god is saying that this is the work of that belongs to you and here's the work that belongs to god it says clean your heart because where does god reside where's the temple it says that we are the living temple That we are God's temple and that God resides in us and a holy being, a righteous, holy being cannot reside in a place that is not clean. He said, I want you to clean it out. And see, out of context, it would appear that this scripture is saying, hey, you got to get right before you come to Christ. Out of context, but that's not what the scripture says at all. Notice that the order was submit, draw near, You've already submitted. You surrendered. You have accepted Christ. You draw near to Him. Then you purify. Then you wash your hands. Then you purify your heart and clean your heart. And finally, God tells us, and I told you I would explain this. And this one's a hard for me to wrap around my head. God says something really interesting here in through James. He says, "Be miserable and mourn and weep." Ooh. That's a hard one. What's he saying? Okay, guys, let me, let me make sure you understand this very, because this is powerful. And if we miss this, you could forget about the whole thing. You are going to mourn and weep, and you're going to gnash your teeth at some point. The, the, the question is, when are you going to do it? james is saying it's better that you now weep it's better that you now lament it is better that you now mourn because there will come a time that if you don't weep lament mourn if you don't do that now you will do that at judgment you're going to do it one way or the other but the choice is yours he says beloved weep mourn repent Do it now, because you are going to do it one way or the other. And when Christ comes to judge all sin, when he comes to judge all of the world, if you're on the wrong side of it, you will weep and mourn and gnash your teeth for all of eternity. The choice is yours, but it is serious business. James says, make the choice. One way or the other, you're going to do it. But in receiving God, here's, the, here's the, the silver lining. He says, if you do it now, then your mourning will turn to joy. That your sadness in your mourning will be turned and filled with the joy of the living God. What will you do? What will you choose? But it is your choice. I hope you make the choice to mourn now. And verse 10. God says again, he's repeating this message through James. He says, what does he say? Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord. And then there's a promise. He will exalt you. Guys, there is power in surrendering to the living God. There is power in saying yes. And although we don't do it because we're looking simply to be glorified, but God says, I will lift you up. I will exalt you that when your enemies and the world tries to to keep you down, when they're kicking you, when they're fighting against you, when even the church is quarreling with you, he says, humble yourself. He says, don't fight. Humble yourself. Beloved, listen, I have... There was a time early in my ministry um, Before I even came God led me to this amazing church family Here at Emmanuel Where in my early church pastorate I too was quarreling with some of my brothers That I was working with in ministry And we got to a place Where I had said enough And I looked at these As I sat down with these gentlemen I said to them guys I'm not going to do this anymore I'm not going to fight you I will not say a cross word about you anywhere, ever. We're at a disagreement, we're at an impasse, but I love you, and I'm gonna leave it at that. I will not, and unfortunately they didn't reciprocate, okay? They didn't see it that way, and they did the opposite of what I did, but I said, God, no matter what they say about me, and they did, no matter how much they falsely accuse me, and they did, I said, God, I will not speak against your people. I will raise my hands to you, and I will do as the scripture here said, and and I'm going to recap this. I'm going to do what it says. I submitted to God. In that dark time in my ministry, I drew closer to him. I simply purified my heart. I loved them. I had no animosity towards them, and I just repented for any of my own pride. I humbled myself before God. And he led me here. Isn't that that amazing? He led me in that separation and in that conflict when I did what James has prescribed to us. God led me into a new place. He led me into a new land in this church flowing with milk and honey. And that's what God says he'll do with you. He will exalt you if you will just see the problem, if you will receive the diagnosis, if you will allow God to plot a course, a course of treatment for you, if you will allow God to move in your heart and in your life and you will say, God, I don't understand it. I can't figure it out. But Lord, even though they're attacking me and I'm getting hit left and right, Lord, I surrender. I submit to you. God, I draw near to you. God, I simply say yes. I pray purify my heart and i say i'm sorry. God do your work. And that's what James is trying to tell us today. This is what this is where James is trying to take us today. And James wraps up in the in these latter two verses, actually 11 and 12, James just wraps it up again and i'll just read this very quickly. We're almost done here. James says, "Do not speak against one another." He says, that he who speaks against his brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge. And one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? That's a very powerful closing that James gives. We have one judge, we have one law giver. James says don't speak against your brother, don't speak against the family of God, don't speak harshly against them. He says no, don't do it. Because what you do is you speak against God himself. Speaking against the image of God and you are the image of God. You are made in his image. And speaking against the very image of God is to speak against God himself. He says, don't do it. But submit yourselves. If you don't remember anything of that today, as you go about your life this week and as things come up, I want you guys to remember that James reminds us, God reminds us through James. He says today, if we're going to plot a course in life that is leading us nowhere else but to the cross... He says, you must submit. You must draw near. You must do all these things that I'm asking you to. You must show me your complete and full allegiance. God says, if you will do these things, if you will purify yourself, your hands, your heart, if you will repent and mourn over the things that you have done, guys, we got to take ownership. This is a world where we don't like taking ownership of anything but we gotta take ownership of this. And God says, whatever you did, whatever you could have done, whatever you didn't do that you should have, whatever it was, he says, repent, humble yourself, and I'll lift you up. If you're going through something right now as we close, and we're gonna close this, Derek, if you wouldn't mind, my brother. As we close this today, thank you so much. If you're going through something today that is pitting you against your brother and your sister, maybe your brother and sister in the church, maybe your brother and sister or someone in your family, if right now you're in the midst of that today, God is encouraging us to surrender. Will you today surrender? Will you surrender your hearts and draw near to God today? Will you actively worship and fellowship? Will you long for God's wisdom? Will you long for God's mercy and grace, not only in your life, but in the lives of those that you may be engaged with? Will you ask God to cleanse your hands and your heart? Will you ask for his forgiveness and repent for your wrongdoings? And finally, again, will you humble yourself before the living God? Will you do that today and just let God work?